Vodka. 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 Vodka Hey everyone, it's Amber Love and you're listening to Vodka O'Clock. And um, don't forget that if you like this show and if you like AmberUnmasked.com, it's real easy to show your support by going to Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked. And that's where you can actually become a financial backer. And if you can't, that's okay, too. You can still share that link to let all of your friends and followers know about it. So joining me today is David Walensky. It's his first time here on Vodka O'Clock, so we will be gentle. Um, (laughs) And uh, we're going to talk about pop culture and entertainment and his career and also how he has come to uh, become an educator about things like video games and mental health and this intersectionalism of um, hobbies and health. So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I will try to be gentle. Um, Let me know if I'm actually not being gentle, and I'll try to correct that. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. So the reason that I had found you was through a mutual friend, Desiree, and she runs the Live Through This Project. And uh, you guys were pitching a panel... Um, and so it was like, you know, there were like three names attached to this panel and everything. So that's how I came across your name and why we're talking today. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you want me to elaborate on that on, from my side or? Sure. Yeah, sure. So, um, we haven't gotten to it quite yet, but I, I met Desiree just through a cold call email. I had reached out to her wanting to talk to her, uh, for this interview series project I've been working on since uh, late 2014. Um, I contacted her wanting to talk not directly about video games, but just sort of something they have in common with, um, people with mental health issues or people who have dealt with suicide, uh, you know, knowing survivors of suicide or people who have actually successfully done suicide. Um, we met because I wanted to talk to her about lazy conclusions people draw about people, um, in general. And so I interviewed her for my project and it led to us sort of sparking up a friendship through Twitter DMs. And uh, we just sort of got to talking about, you know, why isn't there more to talk about in these mutual categories, which are not, they don't need to be as separate as they seem to be um, in the video game world, just because you very rarely see video games um, dealing, I think, respectfully with these types of issues. So we just decided, hey, we talk about this sort of stuff all the time. Why don't we pitch a panel um, for South by Southwest next year in 2017 uh, about this sort of, you know, why isn't this a thing we see more of? What are things that um, people would like to see more of? What are sort of the ways video games can reach people, you know, who are vulnerable in a way that other people may not be able to? So uh, that panel we're still waiting to hear if it's going to get the green light it just went through a public voting process and there's this complicated equation of how south by southwest southwest uh rates it and weights it um so we'll be hearing i guess in a few weeks and hopefully that's a thing that we will get to do and if not uh we'll find something else to do together because we're committed to exploring that together that's really cool i didn't realize how it it seems like how unique their process is. I think that's really different. When I saw that you guys were looking for public votes and you had to like actually make a comment, like you can just click a yeah, vote Yeah, you button. had to register to vote, which I guess is the yeah. way uh, most voting processes work. But I don't, I don't know that yeah. South by Southwest is, uh, you know, the, the new world order or whatever. 
Exactly. <laughs> so, so you mentioned video games, yeah. and we're gonna we're gonna get into that. But I want to know that your, um, like what what was your geek life? How did you, um, you know, get started in this pop culture part of life? Oh my goodness! Well, I mean, because you know, it's like entertainment is is so vast. I mean, yeah. I mean, especially when you think, hey, there's a reality star uh, running for president right now. Oh, that's true. Uh, I mean, like you know, entertainment's everywhere. Yeah, um, it's funny because I don't really, I don't know that I think of myself as a geek or as a nerd. I just I've always sort of joked that I'm not cool enough to be a nerd. Like, I, it's not like I have any like self-esteem issues or whatever, just I'm I'm left caught up on, on those individual labels and, and clicks, which, uh, you know, obviously growing up, you sort of you need to navigate that a lot more, you know, when you're in high school or junior high or elementary school. Just I've always just kind of been, uh, you know, a dork or a nerd or just someone who, you know, I grew up at a time where that sort of meant more that, you know, you're interested in video games or you like to read sci-fi or fantasy novels or maybe you like comic books. Um, but, you know, I grew up in a household where, you know, I was also like a music nerd and I played guitar and was in bands and I was a video game nerd and loved to read magazines about video games. And I, uh, I just yesterday remembered there was this series of books I loved to read as a kid uh, by Robert Asprin, who his books were about like magic users and they had a very funny tone to them and all the names in the books. They had uh, puns on the word myth, like like another horrible myth or something like that. Um, so I guess just, I don't know. I mean, I've never really thought of those things as, uh, you know, jocks versus nerds and stuff like that. It's just sort of like, well, this is the stuff that I've always been interested in for whatever reason. I've never really sort of examined, you know, why is this the stuff that speaks to me? I think it's just more, you know, I like things that are honest explorations of whether it's, you know, real or surreal or not real. Um, and I think you tend to see stories like that, you know, even if they have recognizable human beings and honesty in them, if they're set in a really unusual place or they're exploring experiences I couldn't actually have in real life, you know, while still retaining their humanity, like it's just, it's super interesting to me, I guess. And I guess I sort of wound up parlaying this into a career <laughs> because I've, I, yeah, I've been an entertainment journalist now for 11 years and um, I'll keep talking unless you want to jump okay. in. But um, I, I think, I think for me, the way that it's sort of crystallized is what I've come to be really fascinated by is sort of the, the fantasy stories that people have in their head about the entertainment industry. Like I, I often say I'm really, really interested in the unsexy behind-the-scenes type stuff, like less so like, you know, gossip and more like, well, why was this creative decision made? And, you know, why? why? Yeah, I love that stuff, too. That's why I like listening to podcasts like the um, writer's panel and stuff the like Nerdist that. The writer's panel? Yeah. yeah it's great. And, you know? um, like, KCRW's The Business is, like, another yeah. awesome podcast that uh, I obsessively <laughs> listen to, and that's literally sometimes just conversations about, like, how did this deal go through, and why did you go to them, and did they approach you? And I don't know. I just I find that stuff so fascinating. Yeah, I, I do. I don't know why. It's just um, 
and, and I guess it's one of the reasons that I like to talk to people on this show too, you know, because I like to find out uh, when I'm talking to writers, it's like, well, you know, how do you, you know, what is, how did you make your book? You know, how, what is your process? How did you plot? How did you come up with characters? And it's just, some people don't have an answer because it's just what they do. Right. So they don't even understand how to explain it. Right. And other people are very methodical. They're like, well, I sit down and first I have this idea and then I jot that down and then I have this outline and they're just like very type A about it. And then I have this cork board and it's filled with like, you know, uh, 200 index cards (laughs) in different colors. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I mean, another track with me um, is, so, I mean, I've been an entertainment journalist, but I've also been a, a teacher. Um, so I've worked in like comedy theaters and a little in academia, like teaching undergrad and grad school. Um, and I think it's interesting to explore this stuff. I mean, as a, as a teacher and as a civilian and as a journalist, because people have these notions that the things that you can buy on shelves or you can download off of a screen, like there's this impression if you're an aspiring creator that these things come out fully formed and it, it, it builds in people's heads and they're just like, how can I ever be as good as so-and-so and how can I ever be as insightful and as smart and as witty and as creative and as amazing and you start stacking up all these adjectives and you sort of forget that like the people who are creating the entertainment you love, like they're just people and they probably show their stuff to, or can I swear on here? Is that fine? Yeah, yeah, yeah they probably just show their shit to friends and they're just like, you know, is this any good? Are people going to get mad at me? Like, are people going to think I'm racist if I do this? Like all the other concerns that people have on top of, you know, is this something that's good and I should do? I mean, for me as a fan, you know, getting to uh, do stories and do interviews through the years, just, you know, sort of getting that indirect sort of education from people's philosophies about their creativity and their process. Um, you know, I, I can see the huge disconnect between between people who are aspiring creators as well as just sort of what we broadly refer to as um, fandom today. But I think, like, any anything you can do to humanize or to understand sort of what went into making the stuff you love, which I think is an inherent part of loving stuff, you know, like, you want to understand it, you want to really absorb it. I think that's completely normal, natural, and, and healthy, um, well, I I agree, yeah. but I don't think it's to a point necessarily. To a point. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think it's necessarily what everyone's thinking. No, and I'll give not. you a, a a perfect example. This morning, um, the I I have been kind of going on Twitter less and less, but um, I was checking out Joanne Harris's. Twitter feed just because it, that's what came up when I opened it yeah. and there was a conversation going on about piracy and this guy who I will say definitely gave off a troll vibe because he wouldn't let up and he just kept telling basically telling these other authors how wrong they were um, he's just some end user who feels that it's not pirating if it's a digital product because he compared it to a bottle of wine. And this was the most ludicrous thing ever. He said, if, you know, instead of just using book, you know, digital book versus physical book, he brought wine into it. He says, I can go into a store and steal a bottle of wine and that's theft. But if I steal a digital book from you, you still have your book to sell. Right. And it's like, no, that's, it's like that is not even remotely equivalent because the book 
still took someone's education, skills, talent to put together. Then it took a copy editor or an editor to help clean it up. And then it took a book designer or a programmer, whoever, you know, whoever made it a digital platform, um, you know, to be read on different e-readers that, you know, not every author knows how to do. And, you know, it goes on and on and on between marketing and, or, or anything. It's like just because it's a printed material, that doesn't mean that that took more effort than the digital version. And people get this way over comics, too. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, it's a digital comic. It's free. It's like, no, you don't understand how, like, every single person involved in that has their own years of experience or education, whether it's formal or informal, and has their own time that they had to dedicate to that and somewhere along the line it'd be great if these people were paid unless they agreed to give it away for free that's totally different if that's what you're all agreeing on then fine but just because a product was is intangible doesn't suddenly make it (laughs) have you know be free i mean i I, sort of why you've been taking a breather from twitter is something i'd love to talk about because i sort of do that in spurts sort of very unofficially and it's not directly caused by like a specific person or specific groups it's just um i I don't know how how old you are i was talking to a friend of mine who's in her uh, mid-20s and i asked if she had ever heard of the 80 20 quote-unquote rule about social media Have, have you heard of this no, I haven't heard of it, but I'm in my mid-40s. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, like, I think it was maybe about 10 years ago, you know, when Twitter was first starting, people were talking about, like, okay, well, you know, you can self-promote yourself on these platforms, but you should spend 80% of your time giving people something of value, you know, sharing. Oh, right, right, versus in, marketing yourself. Right, and then yeah. the idea is, like, that that effort and output, quote-unquote, buys you. Like, you're okay, now 20% of the time you can self-promote. And I feel right. like with with uh, Twitter, I mean, I'm not on Facebook. I certainly I have uh, my circle of people who are always um, hectoring me to join Facebook. Like, you really got to get on Facebook. You don't know what you're missing. But these are always the people who pass along to me all the stuff I would be missing that they think I like. So I have a nice built-in curation system with that. Like, yeah, but I think the like the typical word I hear a lot before fandom is entitled, and I don't know if that's the thing that's like made you want to take a breather from Twitter, but I, I find this is an increasing thing with people inside and on the periphery of my circles is just like I have I've written about that a lot because yeah. um, because creators far more successful than I am talk about these things like the Ghostbusters. Uh, you know, problem or, you know, like, I mean, just following Gail Simone and I'm not, I don't like worship at the altar of Gail Simone. I like her. I respect her as a creator. Um, You know, I'm sure I'm not going to love everything she makes, you know, that's just life. I have my own taste and she has, you know, her content. So uh, I love to watch her feed though. And, and, just see her have to smack these idiots down on a routine <laughs> daily basis. Yeah. Like they just don't let up. It's tiring. And, and it's so, I mean, she could be, she could be talking about how the daffodils in her backyard are growing and someone will have something to say about that, about, you know, about how that's, uh, you know, uh, man hating. What's the matter? You don't talk- like violence? Violence? Yeah, good enough exa- for you? exactly. I mean, so it's, it gets to the point of being ridiculous and, um, but right now I'm working on a new book, so I tend to just stay, you know, I get to, when I'm focused, I manage, 
yeah, yeah. I get to stay stay I off of that. But I I had to back off a couple of weeks ago because yeah. and lock I actually locked my account for a couple of days because of trolls. Uh, and I'm and I'm like, dude, I'm a freaking nobody. I was participating in a chat in a hashtag chat, and that's and it got it. It's just ridiculous. Like if you don't like it, then just leave it alone. We weren't being offensive to anybody. I could see if we were having like a racist hashtag chat, right. then fine, come come after. But we were just talking to each other. Like one person is the moderator and asks five questions and then everybody takes their time to answer them. Yeah. Like to just talk about who they are as people. There was literally nothing offensive. And it's just like they just saw that hashtag and went wild. It's like get your little boy, 10-year-old mentality out of here. I mean, and so, you know, Twitter does nothing. They don't, right. you can report all of these assholes and Twitter does nothing. Right. Well, it's, 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 um, it's odd because uh, we haven't really talked too directly about, uh, you know, the project I've been working on. This is not my, my sly way to segue into it. We don't really have to discuss it at great length, but. Um, no, we will. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's. We're here to know you. We're here to it's, you. Oh man. I don't even know if I know me, but uh, <laughs> it's interesting because. I think we think of these platforms as ways that we can, you know, we and I think we should, you know, we should try to cherry pick and, and eliminate all the toxicity. But that's that's such an abstract thing, you know. It's like a war on terror, or it's like a, it, it's hard to do. I mean, I, I had interviewed someone for my project, which just very briefly, it's it's a mix of. Um, ethnography and workforce journalism and recent anthropology, um, which is a variety of big sounding words, which basically just means I'm trying to help humanize a lot of different aspects of the video game industry um, and the culture around it. Um, I'm not talking exclusively to people who are in that world. Sort of the big intent with this project is to try to help humanize and give more nuance and an outlet and a platform for things that inside of that world with the current media landscape there really isn't space for. So that can come in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it's very typically exploring sort of disaffection or people's frustration with the potential that they see and just the sheer amount of resistance and obstacles and roadblocks to that. Um, this is sort of an odd first example of an interview. I'm sure I'll be doing this more just because my brain is sometimes a, it's like a, it's not like a <laughs> top of the line computer. It's more like a K-Pro. Like I'll remember things here and there just because I've done so many interviews. <laughs> um, but the one that comes to mind is I had interviewed um, a guy who used to do business development for Microsoft when they had the uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator and that was a new thing that would come packaged with computers, Windows computers. And I asked him, you know, he, you know, he's 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 a, a less of an artist, more of a business-minded person. I asked him about, you know, were people this intensely vitriolic in the '90s online? Sort of, what do you remember? I mean, he had a very sort of Zen-like attitude about it, which is, well, you know, there are. I'm paraphrasing here. There are assholes offline, so of course there would be assholes online. Um, I don't know that it needs to be one-to-one -one <laughs> quite in the same way that everyone who's an asshole offline um, might be online. I think oftentimes you have people who, you know, it's the inverse, like the online space is their outlet for that. Exactly. Um, but, I, but it's also very different. Like yeah. people, people are going to maybe gossip about each other and be shitty to each other behind their backs, whereas online they're just very direct about it. Well, yeah, I mean, everyone's 
really tough before they have to actually <laughs> throw down, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's true of everyone. I think the other thing that's very scary and also aggressive about this is, you know, if you are a creative person and you want to create and support yourself either fully or partially, um, there there is this eroding notion that um, work inherently has value or creating inherently has value. I think there's, there's a very big trajectory of people, you know, I, I mentioned before, like, you know, very influential, successful people, they still run what they want to do by their friends. But I, I do sometimes wonder about the nature of sharing things, you know, in rough draft, in early form, in testing ideas out on social media. If it's sort of, a, if if that's sort of a thing that has eroded the notion of like, yeah, every, you know, the end product in and of itself, it should be valuable and it should have money. There shouldn't be these like quasi-intellectual loophole arguments of how this is like that, and so that's why I'm justified in stealing. Um, you know, it, a very formative thing for me is I got my degree in music business near uh, Nashville, um, and I was studying it at the time that Napster was happening. And so that's honestly been a huge framework for me and sort of the way that I view a lot of the world and a lot of the work that I do is sort of, you know, how... How are industries changing? How are industries resisting change? How are they <laughs> making change worse? You know, in that case, literally suing your own customers. I think I think we have the inverse going on here, where we have customers or consumers, just people, you know, convincing themselves that because they buy a thing or they don't buy a thing, that they know what's best. Um, I mean, it's very scary. Just like the notion of intellectual property is, uh, I mean, it sounds like a musty academic topic, but if you think that things don't have value, then it's, it's going to sink all of us, you know? But that's, yeah, but intellectual property is a big, huge, and to me, interesting topic um, because of the the day and age that we live in. I mean, you know, you talked about Napster and it's like, Hey, nowadays we still do have mega stars like Beyonce and Taylor Swift. Like these people are not hurting for money because, there's pirating out there. They would just simply have even more money if there wasn't. Yeah. Um, but you know, with the, with talking about IP, it's the like fan films now, like there were fan films funded through crowd source, um, crowdfunding platforms, like maybe Kickstarter or maybe Indiegogo, whatever. And some of them still get made and don't get shut down. Other ones get made and then told they can't be released. And, um, you know, it's like, especially with something like the Star Trek franchise, Star Trek is usually very good to its fans and gives them a whole lot of leeway. Mm-hmm. But once in a while, you know, like that, there was a movie that somebody made they wanted to put out. And at first they were told they could. And then they were told, uh-uh, no, you can't. Because it's, you know, not only was it Roddenberry's empire, but it belongs to some giant corporation, like Paramount or whatever. Right. So it's tricky, um, and that's an interesting example yeah. because I think so. We have these, yeah, we have these opportunities to to honor things by being fans and make cool stuff, but you still have to realize it's not your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, so when in in all of your you know your long career, and I mean, I guess eleven years might not sound long, but uh, well, um, with the internet, yeah, it feels at least four times as long. It feels longer, <laughs> it feels longer um, and shorter, longer with a shorter tail. Yeah. What's been a really memorable interview or um, discovery that you've made during this time? 
Oof. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I've been somewhat of a, a nomad with what I've done. I mean, it's not exclusive to, to interviews. I mean, I've written certainly, you know, reviews and, um, you know, long form stuff. Um, I think probably just the driving thing, if I have to look back and as I continue to look forward is, I feel like I use this word so much, it doesn't even mean anything anymore, but I'm very interested in uh, humanizing, you know, whether it's celebrities or in this case right now, like an entire industry that's sort of very insular. Um, I I don't know what happens when you Google me because I never Google myself, but a couple of years ago, uh, I sort of, uh, <laughs> I had a, I had a thing on the internet that exploded and sort of got passed around a lot, and that was talked about in a lot of podcasts, um, which was that I had interviewed Gallagher when I was an editor at the Onion AV Club. Uh, oh, those days! I love love Gallagher. Yeah, <laughs> and so I can remember going to the going to the video store and renting those. <laughs> I mean, I you know I I think. I think people hear that like, oh, you interviewed Gallagher, and they immediately sort of knee jerk. They 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 laugh at the notion of you know what does Gallagher have to say, or what could he pod like what insights or nutrients could a conversation with that possibly yield? I mean, I I even remember at the time sort of my my bosses like sort of laughing and thinking it was a, a waste of time, um, and you know I I didn't approach that interview to be contrarian or to be cute or to be whatever just I was legitimately curious and you know we've all read interviews with whether it's a comedian or a tv writer or a comics writer you know where they're doing these interviews and they're you know the the unspoken agenda is that they are supporting a new product that they made and um they answer any number of questions about it and sort of the through line is like hey go buy this thing um, I, I, it's hard for me to pinpoint a single example that's been the most instructive, but I think this is this is a good one because it sort of made a bunch of splashes and it was not at all expected to because the notion was, I think people here, if they know the name, I think they conjure an image of sort of like a like a pathetic, sad, washed up man smashing fruit. <laughs> they don't really picture right. like you know, the person who's still touring around and performing and is dedicated regardless of his attitude and what he has to say. I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest. It was a really odd conversation because he was very combative up top. And I think he was so used to people mocking him to his face or doing interviews that were setups or, or, or whatever. Um, and a lot of this, the, the, the content of the interview itself was a little strange. It just veered into like outdated, strange, racist theories that he had and all sorts of stuff that really wasn't on the roadmap of things I was expecting to talk about with him. Um, and I don't really take the attitude that just because it got a lot of traffic that it was a good or successful piece. I mean, of course, I'm I'm flattered that it, it rippled and was referenced in a lot of other articles. And it was sort of this thing that I think opened the door for a lot of other podcasts to be interested in talking to him again. It's just I, I am, for whatever reason, driven to go through that process of sort of, you know, whether it's removing a layer of dust or permafrost or whatever, just sort of getting at like, okay, who is this person and what makes them interesting? What do they have to say? Um, and I just, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I'm 
fascinated about going through that process. It was not my intention at all to, you know, to set him up or whatever he thought, to ambush him, whatever he thought when we first got on the phone. You know, I'm just legitimately, I'm more interested in talking to someone like that than someone who is, you know, it right now and who everyone is talking it to. Gets, it gets boring when, yeah. you know, especially well, when they do the... the it does, yeah, but I can understand. The, the press, yeah, yeah. the press drunk at thing. I think it gets boring for the person being interviewed as well. I mean, this is sort of it a... Because, like, they, they've been asked how many times, exactly. like, you know, oh, so how did you prepare for this role? Or what was your favorite part? Or what was it like working with Brad Pitt? Like, I mean, they've, <laughs> they, you know... They've been asked the same questions eight thousand times. What was it like when it's probably not going to be an interesting answer? I mean, it might be. You know, what was it like to kill that person? That might be kind of interesting. But what was it like to work with blank? What were they really like? Um, yeah. You know, I'm not. I'm not thumbing my nose at it. That's a completely legitimate approach to interviewing. But you, you know, I people don't need me to do that. I don't need to do that. There's going to be no shortage of that. Um, I, you know, I. I guess it's, it's strange. I, I, I would not say I'm indebted to Gallagher. I just think it's a really good example of that kind of a thing. It is interesting. So, I mean, so I took it when, very seriously. You know, I, I went out and I bought all of his specials. I watched all of them. I read everything that I possibly could. That's the approach that, um, you know, I didn't study journalism in college. I studied the music business, like I said, and I, I think that was very much um, – the culture of uh, the Onion AV Club at the time when I was there is, you know, it's the, it's the confusing thing about that place is that it's the straight journalism side of a satirical newspaper that covers the entertainment <laughs> industry. And, and in those years, I just learned to sort of say yes to whatever people's questions were about what it's really like to work there. Um, just as far as, you know, like, oh, do you just make stuff up all the time? Yeah, that's right. That's all we do. Um but, you know, I, I, I took it very seriously because, I, to me, the person and the, the track record and other people's opinions of it, like, that's sort of irrelevant. I'm much more interested in what does the person think and what do they have to say and what do they feel like they don't really get to talk about all that much. I think that's much more interesting for me, for them, and forever, <laughs> whoever winds up I, reading it. Yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely agree. So with, um, I mean, Gallagher is from like the, you know, what I, 80s. kind of like the the old days of stand up when you stood up on a stage. And now it's like, <laughs> now it has to be everything. Now you have to get your sitcom and your specials and you have to be hilarious on Twitter. I and, wish Gallagher had I a mean, sitcom. That would have been amazing. I mean, there, yeah, there's just, there's so much put into it. Yeah. And that's, and, and it sounds, did you ever see the, um, like Mike Birbiglia Specials. I need to. I, I know who he is. I haven't seen. Okay, he's great. He has a, have you, the new. Are you talking about his new movie or his um his specials? The, the 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 movie where you know it's about the you know his life on the road and you know it's one of those things where it's like you know I had this girlfriend for a while and then they broke up. And, oh, I have know, seen that on, one. That's right. Yeah, you're like on the road forever and you're in these shitty hotels and I mean it just. The life of a of a comic before they're famous, before they're super famous, sounds terrible. I don't know. I think the life of a comic after they're famous also sounds terrible. <laughs> it might be, and it's and it's interesting how many people in the comedy business actually do suffer from depression and anxiety. So it's sort of like circling us back around to our mental health conversation yeah. here. Is uh, you know, is it just a like a mask, like or or what is it that we have to in anywhere in the entertainment business, there's something of you that you have to put out to the world. Mm -hmm. But it, is it is it going to be the real you? Is it going to be a fake version of you? Is it going to be some splintered off fragment of you? You know, I just 
well, it's, it's not always like the days of, you know, people were coked up and it was, you know, like, well, that's their onstage coked up personality. I'm sure they're really happy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I flash back on a conversation I, I used to have when I was teaching in the comedy theater. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this. I'm sure people listening to this have heard this, that the, the key to, to comedy is timing. Um, and in line with that, you know, a lot of the introspection and a lot of the analysis that goes into, you know, to, to being uh, just a very tight, lean comedy machine. You know, you need to be very fixated on the details. You need to be, you know, I'm sure you've heard of this too, where comedians, you know, they tape their shows and then they watch and they, they criticize, you know, like this is ways to make things better. This is where they screwed up. This is, you know, cut this second here, cut the second there. Don't say this like this, say this like that. Don't say this at all. And you can only say this in certain parts of the world. You can only say this in certain times of the day. Um, I think you, you add all that up and you have your success tied to a fixation on details. And that doesn't sound like the recipe for being well-adjusted, comfortable, and in good spirits. It might make you successful, but I think it's also just sort of, it's a part of yourself that you have learned to exploit. I don't think necessarily in a negative way, but it's a part of you that you harness that maybe, you know, if you weren't trying to make your living off of, you might just use every once in a while rather than needing to be in that mode all the time. And I think whatever it is, I think if in your life you have monotony or the same cycles over and over and over again, and then you <laughs> attach to it, you need to be able to feed yourself or as you get more successful or more famous, you know, more and more people are, are hitched to your star and your fortunes. It is incredibly stressful. I think it's incredibly the opposite of what we think of as being affiliated with, you know, being funny or being joyous or being in good spirits. So, I mean, it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but it doesn't at all surprise me when, you know, you hear about like, you know, like a couple of years ago, like when we heard about what happened to Robin Williams and, and he and his suicide, like, I, I mean, obviously it was sad, but I don't think it was a complete shock because I, I think of people who are funny that I know and, yeah, but I think that's true of a lot of people today. I think a lot of people, especially, you know, you just need to go on Twitter and you can sort of see, <laughs> depending on what yeah, circles exactly. you are in, it's not necessarily everything is, um, you know, sunshine and rainbows. Not that life is anyway, but when you have the expectation to be a certain way and you don't feel like being that way, then... You know, yeah. I think that's true. I think that's it's the expectation. It's what it's people's idea of that person. Right. So when um, that's you know like comedy and entertaining yeah. live. Um, but when we talk about something like gaming yeah. or creating comics or something like that, that's um, that's on the end user's time. You know, right. it's not a. You know, you're not necessarily live interacting with the devs. You know, maybe in some cases you are, or maybe there's a community manager in there. When so when you're talking about um, that, you're going to be doing this panel at South by Southwest, hopefully. Yeah. 
about talking about mental health and gaming, are you talking about from the end user point of view or are you talking about from the developer point of view? I think it's, I, uh, I mean, obviously this is tentative and I'm a third of, of this group, so don't, don't take this right. as pure gospel, but the intent behind it was to, and is to, yeah, is to sort of explore this from the mentality of from people who are making games, you know, what are more respectful ways they can approach material like this, what sort of research they should be doing, what are things they should be aware of, you know, in other mediums or articles or whatever. It's also to explore, you know, from the player perspective, you know, what are things they'd like to see that they're not seeing as well as any, everything in between, you know, um, internet has changed everything so 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 much but you know i think if you're at a if you work at a game publishing company if you're a publisher you know i think it's also just being able to hear that there there is a demand for stuff like this and what that looks like and where the opportunities are um a lot of the value you know of a conference or whatever is that sort of pop-up community that happens and sort of that concentration of energy and and thought and intent and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mentioned earlier, you know, a part of being a fan of a thing and loving it is wanting to learn a lot more about it. And for people who don't feel that they are on the inside of video games or that they don't feel as informed as maybe they feel they should be, um, video games are a very strange field and thing because they're so pervasive you know if you own a smartphone like you're two taps away from buying a game um but even though they seem to be everywhere they're still largely invisible for a lot of people today um the game industry always likes to say that it's bigger than hollywood but that doesn't really actually mean anything. <laughs> They're med- right. Well, I I think people ha- are very divisive about what a game is. Right. And um and I think it was sort of like how how I also discuss television. Like to me, what people consider game shows is not the same thing to me as reality TV, which are you know like those competition shows. To me, is not the same thing as a game show. Right. So I think there are differences in judging video games where, like, my parents will play solitaire every single day on their laptops, but they would never in a million years be referred to as gamers. And yet it's mm-hmm. it's a video game. It's a game that they're playing and they're trying to get, you know, win and get points. So there's everything out there from the fashion apps where you get to dress up a character and if you get enough community response likes or whatever it is somehow it bolsters your rank right which i mean i think is interesting but i mean it's it's a whole format of games out there that do this and then there are what other people think of when you say video games and they think of halo and dead or alive and um you know yeah it's where there has to be a lot of shooting and action and half naked women and there have to be um, otherwise it's not a game otherwise it's not a game and then <laughs> you get points and then you get life points and you don't want your life points to go down yeah. and you have to build up skill sets and um so the like I think gaming itself is a massive, massive industry. I don't know if it's bigger than Hollywood, but... Well, yeah, um, I mean, it's very boring to pick that apart, but basically what, but, what they're talking about is they're talking about um, revenue, but they they, uh, they they fudge the numbers in a way where they include 
sales of software and also hardware. So like when you go and buy uh, an Xbox or a PlayStation, well, they're, or whatever. yeah, they're but the, but the movie industry doesn't really count like sales of projectors and cameras and uh, sure. theater seats and concessions, um, and that's all sort of immaterial anyway because if you're talking about bigger than Hollywood I think what you really want to be exploring is like cultural impact and the way that it's able to you know assimilate into the mainstream and be a part of people's lives for as long as movies are I mean video games there are so many delineations we just talked about which are just ways to further fragment um, communities and subcultures and markets and really it's just everyone loves the same thing but for some reason it's somehow different in some people's minds and I think sort of the, one of the really harmful things you know leading up to the last few years when there was this eruption of just misogyny and sexism and all really really ugly stuff I mean it's not unique to video games at all it's not at all unique to even this decade or century there used to be like riots over operas and it goes back and back there's a long history of this stuff but I think specifically in games there's always been this notion that like oh this is the bad shit this shit is no good this is terrible like I think there's there's a denial of the fact that like you know those fashion games you mentioned like like something is always every like everything is always someone's everything. Like there's a thing that you may think has no inherent value or appeal at all, but like that could be someone's entire life and they love you. They love doing that and they love playing it all the time. It doesn't mean that one is invalid and the other is valid. It just means like, Hey, you actually like the same thing. That's not a issue at all. Why are you making it an issue? <laughs> it's yeah. not like there's a finite amount of uh, video games that are going to be made. It's, there, there's, um, I think there's just been a very pervasive self-consciousness and insecurity that's been inherent to the space for decades and decades. And why it is still lingering around is, a, is another thing altogether. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's not it's unique new, to video games. No, and it's definitely a medium that can be used strictly for entertainment and fun, or it can be used to reach people. Obviously, there's a whole particular branch about education, right. you know, educational games for kids. And, uh, you know, so I started looking around and asking friends if there were video games that specifically had a character with mental illness right. or something in it. And Depression Quest was the only thing that came up. And I checked it out. And to me, it was like, actually, not very good. But, you know, not for nothing against the developers. I'm sure they're great. And they had great intentions. I, I mean, it just it won all of these awards. And I have no idea why. Like, to me, there's no actual gameplay. Uh-huh. So I, di- I, I just didn't get it. I, I don't know. I just it was it didn't resonate with me. I didn't understand it. And I, I think that I think that's uh, sort of a thing, because obviously, uh, you know, the creator of that game uh, <laughs> went through some turbulence with absolutely video game and I come fandom. I think that's sort of a self-conscious yeah. thing for people to to say is, you know, oh, I didn't actually really like it all that much. I mean, I, I, I would have agree with you. I think Desiree is a bigger fan of it than, than both of us. I think it's completely valid and totally has merit and is someone who can just as easily, you know, we could be talking about depression and my experiences with it. I mean, I think it's good. I'm glad it exists. I think it's like, I think it's more helpful for people who don't know anything about depression rather than um, speaking directly to people who do have it, if that makes right. sense. Right. It's when I was 
going through. I think everyone has pages, depression, but that's a, that's a whole other. Yeah. That's possible. <laughs> um, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the, well, yeah, that's just it. I don't think there's such a thing as normal. Right. Um, Thank you for saying that. <laughs> going yeah so going through the, the depression quest pages to me it just felt more like a choose your own adventure book which right. is awesome and fun if that's what you want to do so it just didn't didn't feel like a game to me but um i completely back the developers right. and the fact that they they set out on this mission and they made it and then they took a whole bunch of shit about it so i you know well you know it's, it's there, there's two, there's two completely different things it's that it's part of this thing i mean any new medium goes through stuff like this it's weird to think of video games as new because if you are as old as as we are they seemingly have been around our entire lives but Every every medium goes through this thing where people are like this isn't even a blank this isn't a movie this isn't a book this isn't a this isn't a podcast you know whatever it is um, and it's it's a healthy thing like we said before it's healthy to be you know questioning um, but if that's sort of your main criticism like it's not very helpful I mean for, for the creator yeah. but it's also like it doesn't really push the conversation in any way it just sort that of, was just it it was like I, I just didn't know what to make oh, of no, it no. And, I didn't, I didn't, and I didn't see the point of yeah, it other no, than I'm not, I'm not and I think that's I'm just, and I think what you said you know makes a lot of sense well for people who don't know anything at all about depression this is supposed to give them some information yeah. and and I guess if that's the goal, then okay. Oh, but, but I think it's, it's. But I, I, I was hoping that it was something completely different. And we get this in comics and in books a lot, and yeah. movies, obviously. Is you get the, you get the person who, who consumed the material and then says, "But it's not what I wanted." And it's like, well, that's not the point, you know. And it's true. Like what I want is just not it. What I was thinking the game would be would that it had something to do with a character who had mental illness, and you took this character yeah. through uh, some kind of you know, whether it was like a Sims or something. I mean, there was no actual avatar. There was no, it was just text. So, you know, it was back in the eighties when people used to type out like the role-playing games. Like, so you've, you've come through a hallway, there's a door on the left and the door on the right. Which one do you go through? Uh, you know, that's, west. I don't understand what you mean. Turn left. <laughs> okay. You see a candle. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's a trunk in the room, well, but there's also a bell I mean, you can it's ring. Just, it's, 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 I think, People, they have this notion, understandably, um, you think of video games and uh, you think of probably Call of Duty or maybe Tetris or maybe Mario or maybe Grand Theft Auto. And, you know, you probably are, are thinking of guns. And um, it, the truth is, you know, there's there's a lot more. Well, it's tricky. I mean, there's a lot more stuff being made, but there still isn't quite like a huge variety of stuff being made. And there are certainly people pushing and trying to nudge the medium in new and different directions. And in line with that, you know, as people sort of questioning the fundamentals of where games started, you know, think of something like an arcade game, something that was designed to be fun and to <laughs> very similar to the app store, just sort of take your money in little bits here and there. Um, you know, all, all movements, all, all art movements are reactions against what came before. And, I think a thing that was sort of more vocally being discussed is sort of like, why do games have to be fun? And I think that's completely fine. I think it's just the more types of things there are, you know, the bigger that we can make this tent, the more we can fill it with more people who bring more to it. I'm not sure why this is such a divisive thing <laughs> online. I don't know why it's a thing that terrifies people. There's probably other stuff going on in their lives that, 
you know, maybe they don't have the emotional wherewithal to navigate. And so, you know, their only outlet, their only way to feel hurt is by trying to ruin other people's lives. And obviously that's, yeah, and that's not that's, a good or positive thing, but I think that's yeah, the reality. Yeah, that, that doesn't do anybody any good. And it might do them they, some good, but I don't think that those are necessarily happy people. That Yeah, exactly. They're not. Yeah. There's, there's something else going on yeah. there worth, you know worth expert exploration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if there's something that that you said really um I, I would love to talk about more. You sure. said, you know, who said who says a game has to be fun? And I'm thinking about other forms of entertainment, you know, like books or TV or whatever. Some things have sad endings, but that doesn't mean it was unfulfilling. Right. To sit through. I mean, Breaking Bad was uh, like a devastating watch. Uh, it but there was a reason people kept coming back for more. And it still was, it's not that it was fun. It was that they got invested in who those characters were. And I think that's true of anything that's a, that's a really great Mm -hmm. form of entertainment, whether it has a happy ending or a sad ending, but it needs to have some kind of resolution at the end. Like there needs to be an end. If it doesn't, I think a lot of people are let down, which is like, you know, some of the like the big franchise movies, like in between Pirates movies and in between the Matrix movies, is just like, oh my god, what the hell just happened in the last two hours? And now there's no ending. Yeah. Well, it's you interesting know. you bring that up. I don't know if I mentioned this via email, but um, about a month ago, I interviewed a Breaking Bad writer for my project. Um, she's writing on uh, Better Call Saul right now, and um, okay. so the relevance to this to this all for people who don't really follow video games and. So uh, Gamergate was a thing that happened in summer of 2014. It's sort of an intentionally slippery thing to understand and explain. Uh, I'm not really all that interested in getting bogged down into the semantics and breaking down, you know, what it is and isn't. But there, there is a stripe of this. Uh, I, I don't even want to elevate it by saying it's a, it's a movement, but. Um, there's these sliding groups of people who have mobilized to threaten, um, you know, women or people from marginalized communities who want to make video games because somehow that will make, it's basically like, you know, they're going to come and take our guns. Um, A year before Gamergate, there was a a thing online, which I'm sure you remember, where Anna Gunn, who played Skylar White, uh, Walter White's wife in the show Breaking Bad, she wrote uh, an editorial for the New York Times. The headline is, I have a character issue. And she wrote about the rampant, uh, rabid, uh, supposed fandom of Breaking Bad, who had mobilized online, creating a huge amount of Facebook groups and um, other stuff online basically saying, you know, oh, we should, uh, we should kill Anna Gunn. Um, in their mind, uh, it's interesting because they are angry at the person whose job it is to perform these scripts. So it's not the creators of the show. It's not the writers of the show. It's the person playing the wife of the person who has a cancer diagnosis and starts cooking crystal meth and entering the criminal underworld and (laughs) endangers everyone around him and kills several people himself. Yeah, separating the fantasy, uh, you know, is something that seems lost. So, I mean, this, you know, and I think, I don't don't know as much about this, but I think there's uh, the 
in uh, sci-fi writing. There's the the puppies. Do you know about this? Yes, I've yeah I've talked about the the sad puppies and, and stuff and the Hugo Awards. Yeah. Um, I've at least I've, I've written about it on on my website a little bit. I mean I'm not a real big part of the sci-fi community, but I do follow a lot of those authors. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of that sort of in, I I don't know as much about that. That's something I need to do more research on. There's with this project I'm working on. There's always like new things. I'm like oh I need to learn more about that. I need to read more about that. So hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn when I reference that. But the but the fact is just you know we have this run of you know, stuff is even as recently leading up to like this Ghostbusters stuff this year. Um, Basically, it's it boils down to the fact that there's a group of opinionated people right. and, and everybody's allowed to have opinions who felt like um, people of color or women don't belong in their sandbox. And so when it comes to something like the Hugo Awards that was voted on uh, publicly, and it's not some, you know, exclusive voting situation. They they come up with a slate, and they say this is who you should vote for because these are the people that we approve of. Kind of like we do with the Democratic convention and the Republican <laughs> convention. Like this is who you should vote for. And yeah. so with that, they tend to pick people who are racist and misogynistic and sexist. And, but every once in a while, they'll throw a zinger in there and throw in a Neil Gaiman. And it's like, uh, OK, well, the, you know, there's there's some hope somewhere. You know? <laughs> <But>. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I, I just I asked her about this, you know, like I remember like uh, the thing I, I asked her, I talked to uh, Jennifer Hutchison. Um, who's a writer on both those shows, I, I asked her, you know, I don't remember in the late 90s, like, I remember people being pretty annoyed at um, Peggy Hill, Hank Hill's wife on um, King of the Hill, but I don't remember them, like, going onto MySpace and being like, oh, we should, you know, threaten the, the actress who, who plays her, you know, like, I asked her sort of, you know, what sort of changed, you know, is it did something change? Are we getting more nasty? Are we getting more vitriolic? And I think you know, with a lot of the interviews I've done, even though it's not all about this, like people very nebulously say like, oh, you know, it's the it's the Internet and people can be anonymous on the Internet. And my mental response to that is often like, OK, well, but you're talking about the car and I'm talking about like, why do people get in that car and turn that ignition? And and Jennifer said that um, and unfortunately, this is not yet up on my site. I'm hoping this interview will be posted maybe in October sometime. But don't quote me on that. She was talking about how, you know, the run of shows, maybe starting with The Sopranos, how there are these TV shows exploring sort of darker protagonists or characters who live in a darker world and the darker sides of their lives in them, that because of that sort of the framework for these shows that people in the audience feel that it is permission for them to also explore these darker sides of themselves, but she made the distinction that she feels like, you know, if you're watching these shows and you're going online and you're threatening people, then you're actually not really a fan. So in other words, like to be like a quote unquote true fan or something like you need a certain level of, you know, separation from fantasy and sort of an intellectual distance and sort of the ability to separate, you know, reality from what's not reality. But the thing that was really, it's going to sound very basic, but, and very obvious, but the thing that she said that I've never heard anybody in what can broadly be called the video game industry, so people who work at the big companies who make video games, you know, like a Grand Theft Auto or whatever, um, Jennifer said, like, you know, 
people can, you know, because I asked her, you know, like, was this what was going on? Like, how did things get to that point where someone in your cast put out a um, editorial in the New York Times? Because obviously this is like not a small problem. And, you know, were you guys concerned as writers about the show? Did you feel responsible? Like, did you think about changing things in the show so that, you know, she wouldn't feel, you know, so that it wouldn't put more heat on her? And she said something that no one in the video game industry at one of these bigger companies has ever said or I think will ever say sort of in the near future, which is like, look, you know, you as customers can threaten to kill us and rape us every day, but we are here to tell a story and it's the story we want to tell and we're going to tell it the way we want to tell it. I have never, um, I'm 33, I've never in 33, well, I didn't start as a baby, but you know, in, in a few decades of following the video game industry, you will never hear a person <laughs> with conviction sort of defend what the creative process is and say that that's their job. Um, I mean, there used to be a time in the history of video games where um, there was a developer called Purple Moon and they made video games ostensibly for the female audience. You know, there was a time in the history of video games where games by that company outsold Madden football. So, I mean, I don't think it's a question of, you know, why was there this fork in the road that people imagined, but specifically in video games, like why wasn't the mentality like, why can't we have everybody instead of let's shift and go just for one? That's a lot of words I just said. It's, <laughs> yeah, but I think there's, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, my story will have a specific demographic versus sure. I want my story to be beloved by everybody. Right. I mean, I'm that's, kind about of, it. That's, that's kind of hard. Yeah, no, and I'm talking about an industry here versus like a, you know, a specific thing. I think it's just sort of right. in video games, it's been entrenched that tra- the trajectory is this is who the audience is. And I think it's, I think in video games, the so, difference is, is that they are afraid of their audience, but it's also like a thing that they built. So it's a very, weird and that's really scary spot. yeah but it's also yeah, their fault it's, it's yeah it's and it's very scary and it just reminds me of that one scene in spider-man when um you know green goblin says there's nothing they like more than to watch their heroes fall and it's so true mm. i mean we love we love to build people up and they're the underdog and then all of a sudden they rise to this iconic level and it's like Okay, but now how can we pick you apart and find out every little thing you did wrong? Like you didn't say thank you to this waitress, you know, earlier well, you today. Know, we used to uh, I, we used to harvest crops in the field, and uh, there was a there was a really great episode of South Park about this about Britney Spears from a few years ago. It's the same sort of thing. It's just um, we you know it manifests differently because we have the capability to do that. It's, yeah, it's just I guess. I guess human nature, uh, it's the reason that there are sciences dedicated to studying it. Um, uh, but actually, to figure out what, what makes us tick. No, I mean, I'm, I, for me with this, like I, something I wish um, is that I wish, you know, the comics world and the video games world would talk to each other more. Um, I have a bunch of interviews I've done that I'll be posting this fall with like uh, uh, David Gallagher and... Uh, Jen Sorensen, who's a political cartoonist, um, these worlds have all the same problems, especially comics, um, just in terms of just, you know, the type of um, vitriolic 
portions of the audience and sort of all of the workforce problems and sort of the way that the industry is glamorized and the way that that just exacerbates both ends of things. I, you know, I, I don't know if there's like a way to quote unquote solve for this stuff with the approach I've been taking with my project. It's more, I think in video games, there, there, there's a need for people to sort of listen and to have dialogues going rather than, you know, going on Twitter and, and advertising <laughs> their projects, which is ironic in context of me talking about my project. But I think it's just it's gotten so segmented and so compartmentalized. And, and Well, I mean, they're too they're it's it's a lot faster to put out an issue of a comic book than it is to make a video, a video game. So I think there's there's a difference in how you can course correct. Like yeah. when when something goes wrong in comics, even if it's six months out of the schedule that's already done, at least the creators have the opportunity to say, okay, we'll, we will do better. Yeah. Whereas to do that in the video game world is completely different. Well, and, and I don't know that they have the same opportunity to to correct yeah. something that was either offensive or insensitive. I mean, you mentioned, um, you mentioned Taylor Swift before, and Taylor Swift is someone who, I mean, this will go back to, you know, what I got my degree on, but, um, you know, she challenged Apple on a lot of their sort of honestly shitty ways they're, you know, treating and valuing artists and the stuff that they're trying to make money off of. I don't really think there are many or even any frameworks for people like that in the game industry. You know, there, there there's no one who occupies that same sort of space as like a pop star who, you know, has has a, a spine and the interest in you know, speaking up for, for people, you know, at her level or below or above, I think, um, because it is so hard for people to, you know, support themselves doing creative stuff. They want to, they want to stay on brand as people say, or on message. And, you know, once, once they get up and in, then, you know, they're, they're fine. I think, I'm sure there are people who still quote unquote make it and then they throw ladders down. Um, meaning they place ladders for other people to climb up. But it's hard to know because people don't really talk about that. That's not as public. There's certainly nothing in games that's like equivalent to like that whole like Taylor Swift pushing back against Apple. It's just very much like, well, I just I want to play nice and I want to be, you know, I want to be able to support myself, which is completely understandable. Yeah, I, but I, I agree. But, I can't think of an example, but I, not that I'm that entrenched in video games either. But I, just, I don't know that I, I really can't think of it. I don't know either. that I can think of any, you know, in, in a lot of other <laughs> fields. Either. Unless, like you said, you know, you mentioned like Madden football. It's like, I'm sure there are some big, huge celebrities whose likenesses are used, but that doesn't mean that they're a part of the industry. Right. Not in the same way as like when a celebrity gets involved in fashion. Sometimes it's just sticking their name on something. And sometimes it's like, um, you know, where they really start actually designing the stuff themselves, which is, you know. Yeah, I mean, sports games is, is, is interesting in and of itself because there was a lot of, um, you know, from I think a lot of the, the those portions of the audience that have been doing a lot of this threatening and stuff, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of homophobia and stuff like that, but there's very rarely, like, acknowledgement or exploration of the fact that, like, those sports games, the people who make them are objectifying men, and what does that mean? And they don't really hear about that. They just, I mean, it's well because, as far as I know, yeah. I mean, I've never, I've never sat there and cared enough to try and play one of these sports mm-hmm. games. But it is specifically just a game time on the field, court, whatever, yeah. what have you, 
moment, whereas you don't get to take your character and go into the locker room and snap somebody's ass with a towel <laughs> and, you know, and get in their face about, you know, being a fag or whatever they want to say, yeah. you know, which is the real world shit. Yeah, where that is that on. football game? Where, you know, <laughs> um, but before I let you go, one of the, the, yeah. the things that I wanted to talk about was something that you had done some research on, which was about... Uh, aggressive behavior and links to violent video games because oh. this always comes up and the the ridiculous and and just coincidental part of it I was trying to just screw around yesterday and take some online practice tests to see how much I've forgotten since college 20 years ago uh-huh. and so I I had taken one that was a, a written essay and the the question of it was it, how you know how would you counter the argument to this op-ed that was written to the newspaper and it was some person writing in talking about that you know the violence in video games is the cause for like the downfall of everything and it's the cause for crime and uh, politicians don't care and at the very least we should eliminate that board that's in charge of it and rebuild a new board mm-hmm. and so you were supposed to write a response to this and it's it just like perfectly came up that we were going to talk about it anyway where in 2015 the american psychological association actually did have a report that said that they, that games play a role in aggressive behavior on the other hand i've heard plenty of people say maybe people who are inherently aggressive gravitate to those games so it's like it's a chicken and the egg like which one's first is it that this person already has this behavior inside because it never fails when there's like a mass murderer they go through their stuff and they find what movies they watched and what you know oh look there's this cartridge to this game sitting here so that must have something to do with it um they used to blame everything on D D, you know oh and comics and comics so you know, oh, look, we found this Iron Maiden album. They're obviously responsible. <laughs> and when you listen to it backwards, specifically here, yeah. you can clearly hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which you can never hear anything. I mean, well, uh, but, yeah. you know, so which came first? Do you have uh, an, a side uh, on this? I don't know. I mean, I should obviously state that I'm just a civilian. I'm not a mental health professional. And I've interviewed people, certainly, who are um, much more knowledgeable on these topics and who that actually is their focus. Um, I would recommend, you know, among the interviews that I've done, um, looking at uh, my interview with Kelly Dunlap and also Aaron Balick, um, who are actually are mental health uh, professionals. And um, I'll, I'll reiterate a bit from what they've both said, because um, I talked to them about just sort of, yeah, you know, why is this, why is this link here? And, what does it mean and why does it keep coming up and is it antiquated? And, you know, Kelly had pointed out to me that typically the only time, and this is, uh, this is a thing that's in our pitch for the South by Southwest panel. Um, you know, the, typically the only times the video games and mental health overlap, it's to discuss, um, uh, violence and, um, addiction. Um, it's always these two big negative. That's true. As, as if there's no other area of mental health to study. And, and that's something that's something that Kelly specifically is, is is researching and trying to work on is trying to help grow that and help you know make that intersection be a bigger thing and a broader thing. I think in general, you know, 
when you look at things that have been the negatives for decades and decades and how they still subsist and how they're still around, that tells one story. But I think if you look at the positives that have been happening and the inroads that have been made and the way things that are getting better, even if you know you are impatient about them, I think a different sort of narrative starts to pop up. And yeah, you know there are all those problems, but also like remember to look over here at the way that things are are, are getting uh, better. I mean, I I read these things not um, cover to cover. I hear about them. I always hear about them, and certainly. You know, in America in the last year, we've had, um, I think zero is the right amount of shootings. We've had more than our fair amount of, of shootings. And I've had people reach out to me, you know, sort of ask, you know, do, do video games cause this? Do video games cause that? I mean, I can't obviously speak. I do think that there is probably a truth to the fact that, you know, there are certain latent things that games let you explore, but it goes back to those things we've been saying, you know, over the last hour or so, which is, you know, can you separate fantasy from reality? And and if not, you know, are you surrounded by people who are able to, you know, help you or look out for you or help treat it? I'm not I'm not really sure, you know, how it quote unquote gets solved. I do think, you know, people being more thoughtful on the creating side, people being more thoughtful on the, you know, consuming side on all sides. I think that is, that is a, that is a healthier thing rather than, okay, who do we point the finger at and who's doing the most wrong? You can probably meet out like who was doing the quote, the most quote unquote, most wrong. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, it goes back to, I mean, me and Kelly, we talk about this. It goes back to just sort of a lot of the um, <laughs> pinball used to be illegal, and there were a lot of reasons for that. It used to be linked with sort of a criminal element. Um, I think that we sort of forget the origins of these attitudes, and I don't know when it comes to this stuff, sort of like when it's just like phrenology and when it's like actually like legitimate insight. I think it makes sense and I think it's reasonable, but I think it's also like, are we considering all the other angles of things and are we also being mindful of like how we can make the things that are getting better? Like how can we make them be even better? Cause eventually just you'll stop talking about the problems because they don't really exist anymore. <laughs> right. But then you would have new problems and that's, you would hope. I, you would I, would, hope, I you, would hope, but I. We would have hoped that by now somebody would have said, well, what's racism and not had an answer and not known, but you know, yeah, I, I, I just I just did an interview yesterday with someone with a, with a couple who are roughly my age, they're a couple of years older, and we we got to talking about that. Like, oh yeah, I remember when we were kids, we were talking about how when we were adults there would be no racism anymore, and um, I don't think we did that. <laughs> mm. But I think it's more of a I think it's a more of a daily rising tide effort and and knowing how to do you know give and take and, and push and pull and not um, doing what I often see online, which is people being very, very upset at people they perceive as not being down with whatever their cause is. Um, you know, whether that conflict is there or not, who knows? But I, I don't know. I mean, I'm personally like, I, I, I would like to see less antagonism, more humanity and more, like, I feel like I never see this online. Like, people saying, oh, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. That doesn't exist anymore. Right. Absolutely. Instead, I, you know, friends like me uh, who are either 
like personal bloggers trying to support themselves or people who actually do journalism work yeah. like you. Uh, unfortunately, I've seen some of them take so much shit from harassment and trolls and doxing and, yeah. you know, th- you know, threatening people that if they, I mean, even in cosplay, which is ridiculous. I mean, cosplay is supposed to all be all about fun and artistic creativity and, you know, like just uh, doing something because you enjoy doing it. And instead, you know, like somebody that I know uh, was threatened that if she appeared at this Comic-Con, she would be raped. Like they know, you know, they would would catch her. And it was just like, you know, she's like, well, first of all, I wasn't planning on going to that Comic-Con. But second of all, um, unless that con can tell me with certainty, they will provide me extra security or something, then I'm definitely not going. And, you know, and then they they cancel their appearances. So it's, you know, when you think I'm about to take the stage and talk on this panel yeah. about something fun <laughs> or even if it's not, a, even if it's not a fun subject, but, you know, Comic-Con is supposed to be a fun place. Uh, you know, if you have to worry that there's a bomb under your stage, that's just ridiculous. I mean, there's sensibly, you know, this is sort of the guiding thing of everything we've been talking about. We're talking about stuff that like, <laughs> you just you love or that you're a fan of and um what someone else's point of entry or opinion on it doesn't diminish your passion at all i mean if it if it does and then it starts to fester and manifest into all this other stuff i think it's something else i i i think that's sort of that and the um the big push for like there has to be a fan consensus on stuff like why i don't really know why but you know i'm not one of these people who is making these threats or doing things like that but yeah i don't know it's it it easily can be a very depressing thing to to ponder but i also think it's also if you're able to it helps to sort of distance and refocus on like just liking the thing that you like and not letting that other shit get to you if you can but if people are coming after you, that's obviously something else. And that's something I also have experience with as I sounds like you do as well, but ultimately like that's not going to diminish you loving the thing that you love. Right. So let's end on, you know, on this upbeat, <laughs> upbeat note. I tried that to in a more upbeat. I, I used the word love. <laughs> you did. Like be more caring to other people. Be more compassionate. Be good to each other, man. Be good to each other. Don't be a dick. Party on. Um, Party on, Wayne. Yes. Be excellent, be excellent to, to each other. other. <laughs> yes. You should. You should. So, David, um, where can people learn more about you sure. or follow you? Um, if you're not on Facebook, then where can they find uh, you? Yes. So the best ways to uh, get at me and find me is uh, we talked about my interview project called Don't Die. It is at nodontdie.com because someone else owns don'tdie.com. Don't go there. That's not mine. Um, And you can also find me on Twitter at David Walensky. Um, My name, I'm sure, will be on however it is you're listening to this podcast. It's spelled just like that, D-A-V-I-D-W-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y. There's also a Twitter account for my project, which mainly tweets out um, excerpts and quotes from things people tell me via email anonymously or in the context of leading up to an interview. It also tweets out interview links as they go up every Friday. Um, That's just also at no, don't die. Additionally, there's also a Patreon for my project because it's just me, literally. It's 
just me uh, and my Skype account and my time and research and effort and curiosity. Uh, that's just patreon.com also slash David Walensky. Okay, awesome. I'm, uh, I'm even trying to jot those down because I didn't even have all of them. Oh, that's okay. I wasn't sure if you had like, um, gotten disconnected or if I froze time. No, I'm there. No, a really, really loud um, dairy truck was going by. That you were like putting silence onto the end because that was the end. So I was like, uh, yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, there's a farm around the corner gotcha. that the, the dairy truck was going to. Um, <laughs> okay. I couldn't. As long as you couldn't hear, there was like drilling or something going on outside. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, I talked to somebody. Yeah, I talked to somebody who was in, I think, Queens or something, and he had, I don't know, it was just like so much New York noise outside his window. Inevitably, too, it's when you have yeah. a call. It's all. Of course, it's, it is. It's over as soon as you're done. You're just like, what? Yeah, of course. Well, all right, David. Good luck, and I, I do hope that your panel goes. Through. Oh, thank you. Uh, hopefully, that was good and interesting. <laughs> hopefully, you're yeah. Love it. Or yeah. well, they don't have to love it. They can. Be, they don't have to love it, but there's, but it's, it's. Our conversation is just a stepping stone to open up a bigger conversation totally. that we hope people have, and we hope that people have the conversations nicely and respectfully um, yeah. to, you know, when we're talking about things like video games and comics and movies yeah. and and the kind of toll that that takes on mental health or how they handle the subject matter of mental health yeah. in the materials, because that's hit or miss, too. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's not. Right. Um, but so thank you, David. Sure. And you guys can follow me on Twitter too at Elizabeth Amber, Patreon for this show and my books and website and whatnot are at patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked. And anything else that you need, you can probably find on Amber So thanks for listening, everybody. 